Thank you, Asha. Kids can come over to their tent. We're excited for another great kids uh, Sunday. I saw a picture of, I think, of a kingdom that they're going to like draw in. It looks very exciting. I think you can talk to Asha. I think it's kids only, but she'll, she'll let you know. Um, I first want to start off. Daniqua, don't go anywhere. Stay right there. Everyone give a round of applause for Daniqua Washington. She's going to just run away, of course. Um, but she, you know, organized, led our Jubilee yesterday. also want to give a shout out to uh, all the folks that helped out. You know, we couldn't have done this uh, by ourselves. Uh, we couldn't have done this by ourselves as a staff. We had dozens of people, like actually dozens, that volunteered to chip in items, um, any type of food you could think of that was donated uh, and was consumed. <laughs> uh, and also uh, there are, yeah, again, 10 to 15 folks uh, that were just dedicating their time uh, being there to man the, the bouncy house. There were bouncy house bouncers, if you could like imagine that, like there were bouncers for the bouncy house. Uh, it was just fantastic. So really uh, encouraged by that. I just want to share one quick story um, with that. You know, my neighbor saw me in a red truck and was like, what's going on here? This is Todd's truck. And she was like, besides, you know, obviously me just being cool, uh, feeling good in a red truck. She's like, what are you doing? And I was like, okay, well, there's this event called Jubilee. And then she heard where we were having it, uh, the corner of uh, Edgewood and Ella T. Grasso. And she said, wow, that's really neat at that corner. And I forget what I said. I was like, of course, like, you know, bouncy houses should happen all the time. And then she kind of looked at me and was like, no, I, like, I mean, it's really good it's happening on that corner. I was like, oh, I know what she means. You know, just two weeks ago, around that area was a site of violence, one of the homicides in our city. And she knew as someone that doesn't go to our church, that's important, that we're actually marking one of those sites by having celebration, allowing parents, allowing kids, allowing families to feel like, oh, this is a park. This is a safe place. This is a beautiful place. So again, all that uh, prayed for it, came, volunteered. We were doing the work of just bringing goodness to our city. So really grateful for that. Uh, this is our second talk in our series, Behold, Kingdom Summer. And I want to start off just by asking you, has there ever been a time where you've seen someone who's really good at what they do, really good at what they do, and just like, well, I think they were like made to do that. Like they were made to do that thing. For me, this happens a lot in my life. Oftentimes when I'm like at like restaurants, when I'm at the airport, I'm just like, you, you weren't like a frustration to me. Like you weren't even just kind of like, at, you, were, you were so good at doing this. It's like you're serving people as if that was a huge value to you. Like I want to serve the people around me. Even when I think about my life growing up, I think about people critical to my formation. My English teacher, she just made things come to life. Some of you guys might have had someone like that when you're under 18. They're just like, she's made to do that. When I think about even crisis moments in my life, when my second daughter, a Joy, was in the NICU, and I was just thinking, I just need some people to be helpful here. And some of the nurses, they just were so kind. They were so helpful. It didn't matter what stage of that little crisis of our lives we were in. They made us feel like we were okay. And I was like, you're made to do this. Even now, as I'm kind of learning and growing, some people know I've been learning about nonviolence or some trainers where I'm like, this is what you're made to do. Like, thank you so much for teaching me. We all have, I think, some examples of that. Whether it's in the past, whether it's the last few years or now, people that are just made to do the thing that they're about. And oftentimes, how we can recognize those people is that they proclaim something, but they also demonstrate something. They talk the talk, but they also walk the walk. They're people where their whole life is the message. That's something critical we're going to see in this summer series, Behold Kingdom Summer. We're going to see the ways that Jesus proclaims a message, but also demonstrates it. He's someone that proclaims and demonstrates. That's how he expresses the value of the kingdom. 
What's cool is that we're forming a community here that's, I think, much the same. Where people, not just people who are like, hey, who I am as a Jesus follower, but they're people who are health professionals, education workers, other people that are doing service works. They're actually trying to embody that same thing that Jesus has. It's one of the, the cool things about this Jesus mission is that we can be who we are, but if we follow Jesus, something animates in us. Whether we're a business worker, whether we're a parent, whether we're a school teacher, that we can proclaim the kingdom message, but demonstrate it in our walk of life. That's what's happening in Jesus' life, is he's coming alive to this kingdom mission, and we can see it, and we can take hold of it. That's what we're doing this summer, seeing what Jesus is saying, but also experiencing what he's demonstrating, both when we read the story of Scripture, but also when we interact today, knowing that God is still alive and at work. So I want to just give a quick recap for some things we talked about last week, if you didn't catch it on the stream or if you weren't in person with us. Obviously, we're beholding, right? We're taking things in. We're listening. We're learning. We're not just doing the kingdom. We have to behold the kingdom first, know really what it is. And then what is the kingdom? The kingdom is the rule and reign of God. It's not just a magical kingdom, you know, shout out to Disney, right? It's uh, another kind of word that we can think about. Maybe like an empire would help us or uh, maybe a government. And really, it's not just those things like the empire of the kingdom or, you know, the government of the kingdom. It's really that royal rule. It's the authority. That's what the kingdom's all about. And I said last week that it can be dr uh, dramatic, but dramatic in different forms, like dramatic because maybe a, a broken body is becoming whole. That's one of the ways. But it's not just that. It's also dramatic because sometimes there's a revelation or understanding, like the kingdom is about service. And the greatest one is the one who serves the most. That's like a new understanding that could be like a dramatic way of, oh, I, haven't, I haven't heard about that. I don't think about, about it that way. And there's this like third form, like kind of the, you know, there's the powerful kind of miraculous one. There's the revelation one. And that third one is just the ordinary goodness of life. Like when you bite into an apple and you're like, wow, that was good. Or when you look at these trees and realize that Jeff Bezos didn't make them. Like he just didn't, right? Like that's just not like what he made. But it's just like these trees are just good. There's a way you notice the goodness of life. And you can know that whether you follow Jesus or not. These are different ways we can experience God's kingdom. So if you're interested in more of that, check out last week's talk. But today we're going to look at Jesus' mission statement. And before we run out and do it, we're going to behold Jesus, behold that mission. And also, uh, <laughs> in a strange way, we're going to have to behold the reaction it received. Because the reaction that it received, Jesus' mission statement, is as much of the story as anything else. This is a story in Luke 4. So today we're going to examine three things. The tension around what Jesus says, the timing that Jesus explores in this, and yes, the tenor three T's, of Jesus' mission. So tension, timing, tenor. We'll get into it. Uh, now let's dig into the text to start off with a bit of context about what Jesus has been up to in this passage. So if you want to turn with me in a Bible, you can turn to Luke 4. You can pull it up on your phone if you want, a website that you have. Uh, Luke 4, it's chapter 14. If you sort of know this part of the Gospels, Jesus has just been in the desert for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, hungry, fasting, and then we get one of these great, like, next little connector words, then, you know, in the Gospel of Mark, it's immediately. So I'm going to just jump off with a then, okay? Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. 
He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring the good news. He has sent me to proclaim release to the, blind, to release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As we hear this, like I even saw it with some of you, you can like nod along, but yeah, like that's my Jesus. Okay, that sounds like a great mission. Come on. Uh, these promises sound good. But I think we know something here, right? Jesus is more than just a politician shouting out promises, like shelling out promises like to different synagogues. Hey, hey, this is what I believe here in the synagogue. Hey, this is what I believe. Hey, this is what I believe. That's more than who Jesus is. Jesus is God. And this introduces our first thing to behold, which is this tension of the kingdom. Jesus is God, yet he's anointed, not appointed. Jesus doesn't, God doesn't say to Jesus, hey, you're just king and now run everything, rule everything as an earthly leader would. He's anointed. He's set apart. He's set aside. He's anointed by God, but it doesn't seem like people know that. People aren't aware of that. It's not like God was like to everyone, this person created everything. You must worship him right now. Nope, that, that didn't happen. He was just anointed. And it really seems like he's anointed by the spirit, right? So he's anointed by the spirit. He can't just make uh, things happen just with like a snap of the fingers, like it's magic. You know, Jesus has human hands, not infinity gauntlets, right? And if anyone's a Marvel fan, you know, Jesus is God, yet he depends on the spirit's presence, not just this kind of magical authority that can change like the whole like kind of reality of someone's life. It's no, like it's, it seems like it's person by person, community by community, not this overhaul of authority. And Jesus proclaims because that message is part of the action. Jesus proclaiming things seems to be part of what he's doing. He is about good news and he's about good works. He doesn't just release the captives. He proclaims that freedom is possible. Like, you kind of think about that, right? If you're in jail, do you want someone to proclaim that you're free? Or do you want someone to, like, break the walls of the jail down? I think you want the walls broken down in the jail. Maybe the proclamation makes you feel a certain kind of way, but that's the tension of Jesus' ministry. He'll proclaim all day, oh, you're free. You're free indeed. But it seems like there's sometimes where the chains are broken. There's sometimes where there's a jailbreak. That's a tension. It's a kingdom tension. We'll see this as we continue learning this summer that Jesus is into the process, not just the results. And these tensions tell me that process matters in the kingdom. It's not just about the end, not just about the end results that we want. It's how we get there. It's also about saturating our environment with comfort around kingdom tension. I'll say that one more time. To be comfortable around kingdom tension. Think about if you're one of Jesus' disciples and you wake up and you talk to your other disciple. Hey, what do you think is happening today? Bro, do you realize like we're following Jesus? We have no idea. You just become uncomfortable with how your day is going to go because you don't know anymore. Right? There's a kind of uncertainty about what it means to follow Jesus. But it's not just about your schedule, right? Because at the end of the day, it wasn't that they didn't know exactly where they would go. Because Sometimes we don't know where we're going to go. But it's also about what they were going to see. Wow, we saw a healing today. Wait, it was a healing of like the wrong kind of person. Like, it just kept changing the different kinds of discomfort they had, the different kinds of uncertainty the kingdom held. We have to saturate our environment with comfort around kingdom tension so we can remember that the kingdom is not yet fully here, so we can't just get settled in something, but it's also not completely absent either. 
And I feel like we usually go to one extreme or the other. We're like, yes, the kingdom is now. It's coming in exactly in this way. And of course, I know exactly how it's happening. Can I teach you how? Because I, I know. Like, I know everything about this. <laughs> or we say, we don't, we don't know where it is. We're, we're just done. We, this is too hard. We don't seem to learn how to live in this tension. It's hard to say there's good news for the poor, even as economic poverty and poverty of the soul increases in our land. It's hard to say there's release for captives, even as more and more people, let's say in our Northeastern context, don't even know the story of Jesus. Not, not agree with Jesus, but actually just don't know Jesus' story. This happened to me. Where I'm like, hey, like, do you know about Jesus? They're like, who? Jesus, you mean? Like, my friend, like I don't know Jesus. Like, seriously. Like, people just don't know the story. But it's also the same thing in terms of people that are incarcerated in prisons or with addictions, that those captive, too, are increasing. So there's release for them, but yet we see these realities of people not knowing the story of Jesus, this kind of spiritual way we see things, and even materially locked up, uh, kept, controlled in these addictions. This is the year of the Lord's favorites, Jubilee that we've been talking about. Even as we still long for freedom, we behold Jesus proclaiming the kingdom in its fullness and demonstrating it even in small ways day by day. These are kingdom tensions. And you've got to kind of check in with yourself right now. Like, how well do you do with tensions? <laughs> like, how well do you do kind of holding these things? Do you go to the extreme where you're like, nope, sorry, I'm going to get comfortable with my side of the kingdom and just say that's how I see it come? Or you just say kind of ditch it all together. You're like, I don't know how to follow this thing. But how much are you comfortable being in tension? I mean, some of you guys were here, I mean, two weeks ago, where we brought Ice the, Bi- Ice the Beef, uh, anti-gang violence group, and one of the things that came up in prayer for them, we had just, uh, it was awesome. Like, uh, we had a basically a prayer team. I don't think they knew they were going to be the prayer team, but we just said, hey, can you pray? And then there was a line of ECVers that were lined up right here to give words of encouragement to Ice the Beef, <coughs> this anti-gang violence organization, organization in our city. And if you were there, you remember, one of the things that seemed to come up was words of uh, joy, even amidst basically people that are surrounded by sadness. Uh, words of hope and life, even though these are people that, talk to people who lost family members to gun violence and they had like a bodily reaction to those words like some of them were crying some of them kind of were like bent down low because I think they were carrying a heaviness for seeing three bodies lost in our city three bodies uh, who uh, lost their life and then there was this way that that word of joy integrity life it was almost like they couldn't hold both things because I think it's hard for us to hold multiple things together God was ministering to them in the kingdom tensions. So if God was going to minister to you in some of the tensions of your life, how would God do that? Would it be ministering hope to a place where you're currently experiencing depression, healing, where you're currently experiencing pain? Maybe it's uh, giving you some clarity where you're sure there's just confusion all around. How might God be inviting you into kingdom tensions? There are those tensions all around the story. And some of them involve timing. And this timing is also all over the place, right? The scroll that Jesus reads is an ancient scroll from hundreds of years before the life of Isaiah. And then this passage is speaking prophetically about the future. So Jesus is in his time reading an ancient scroll that prophesies the future. That's confusing, right? But then to make matters even worse, Jesus says this after reading the passage, verse 20, if you're following along in scripture. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, 
this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What? <laughs> what, Jesus? So everything I just named is attention. Jesus is saying, actually, that's fulfilled right now, having heard that. Jesus is the fulfillment of tensions, all of them, in the hearing of the scroll. But there's tension, there's a strange timing, but hey, what we see is that the crowd doesn't seem to mind right now. Let's look at this, verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is this not Joseph's son? The crowd's amazed. This is the hometown hero coming back. The prophecy is now. The tensions will be resolved right now. Perhaps this crowd thinks the kingdom is now. And what does that sound like? To me, that sounds like a political rally, like a rallying cry. Hope will come when I get elected. Yes, we can. Make America great right now. Maybe I shouldn't shout that one out too loud, but uh, hey, I won't repeat it again. Yet Jesus is not a politician. And where some people use like this messianic fulfillment for their own political agenda or purposes, Jesus does something really strange next because he has the crowd. They're like all with him. They're for him. Like he read scripture. He's like, hey, this is Bible based. I just read Isaiah. This wasn't my own plan. I was quoting like what was old. He has them like right where he wants them if he wanted like a kingdom, like maybe we can want a kingdom sometimes. But this is the part where we can really behold Jesus and treasure him and honor him and love him and say, see how he's so different than us. Because first we saw at the, uh, the outset that Jesus is the king of holding tensions in an ever-growing but also not yet here kingdom. And second, for balancing this kingdom timing that is somehow past, present, and future. But third, he's always the master at holding the tenor of the kingdom, the character of it. Tenor is a weird word. I'm learning just to like certain words these days that are kind of like giving me something back. I'm like, ooh, tenor of the kingdom. Like the way the kingdom is, the character, its nature. So get this. I'll, I'll try to be light on this because I'm, I'm unfortunately a meme person. You know, not mean person, but a meme person. So if you, if you know it, you know it. If you don't, just ignore this for like two minutes. But you know the memes are like, no one, like no one, like absolutely no one. And then it's like you after a graduation party that has donuts. And it's like a picture of you like just with donuts all around. So like, it's like no one told you to do that, but then you did it. Tina's like, move on quickly. This is not going well. Um, <laughs> I saw her face. I, re I read the sermon face as well. Hey, Jesse's fallen. This is good. But I think this one could be like, no one, like no one. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus goes off, like completely off. I'm going to read the scripture to you right now. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And Jesus said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. Just to pause real quick. It just did look like they did accept him in his hometown, but it's Jesus, right? So we got to keep following along. 25. But the truth is there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, six months. And there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except for a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. When they, all, when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. Talk about tensions and talk about timing. Jesus had them in the palm of his hand. They were all like excited. They were all praising him. 
And then without anyone saying anything, like maybe there's that one person in the back who just don't get recorded in scripture. Like, yeah, Jesus, we don't believe that. Like, maybe so, but that's not in scripture, right? So I think it was like just acceptance. And then Jesus seems to pick a fight that no one vocalized. And he says that, like I said, no one. Then Jesus goes off, absolutely. So what's the tenor of the kingdom here? If I had to venture a guess, it's that Jesus picked up on something in this all Nazarene crowd that might be less obvious to us. When Jesus read his mission statement, I think it seems like Jesus thought he heard, the thought he, Jesus feels like they heard the following, what I'm about to say. Like when he said it, Jesus like, I think you thought it was more like this. So this is the version that I think people felt like they were hearing then. So it's a, this isn't in your Bibles. This is the Josh Williams translation, right? Exegesis right here. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, your champion, not theirs, because he has anointed me to serve you, not them, to bring news to the poor that look like you. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives who are, of course, imprisoned by your enemies and a recovery of sight to our blind, to let our press go free from our enemies, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor over us, not them. I think that's what Jesus felt like people heard when he said the mission. And why do I say that? Because Jesus, without a verbal interruption from them, goes into two stories of Israel's past, two stories that, that, that center Israel being in deep need, a famine and disease. And instead of a politician story where, you know, he would hear that and be like, hey, there was once a time where God brought manna down. He got fed, you know, you got fed. There was once a time where, you know, there was leprosy on hands and it was healed. Jesus doesn't use these stories that center their own healing. He actually uses stories where Israel, Israelites, they don't get what they want in their time of need. But actually, God gives it to foreigners, to outsiders, to immigrants first. They get food and healing even when the people of Israel were still diseased and hungry. When the crowd heard this, these people, they didn't behold Jesus. It doesn't matter if it was summer, winter, fall, spring, whatever. They, they didn't behold Jesus or his proclamation. They didn't become curious about his demonstration. Instead, here's what scripture says they did. 29. They got up, drove Jesus out of the town, led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Not only did they not accept the message, not only did they thumbs down it on their social media of the day, which might have just been their fingers down or whatever the, 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 the sign was then, they actually tried to murder Jesus for what he was saying. There's kingdom tension. These people did not want tension. They want it resolved in their cultural favor. There's kingdom timing. These people did not want to wait. These people did not want to hear that something unfortunate happened in the past to their people that could maybe happen again. They wanted the kingdom with their agenda right now, their way. They wanted that so desperately, and they thought they had it for a very short amount of time. And then, as you know now, Jesus went off, and then they almost murdered him. Those that maybe heard my teachings on nonviolence might say, I know Jesus didn't hurt anyone here, but didn't he start this? Like, didn't he pick this fight? And my sense is that Jesus knew their hearts. Remember we used this phrase earlier about negative peace, a time that I might look okay, it might look fine on the outside, but inside he saw the violence. This is for me. This mission is only for us. And Jesus started something. 
you know, some people, young people these days, maybe younger than me say, like, he wanted the smoke. Like, he wanted the fight. Because he's like, this is a good fight to have. It was a response to this idol of a cultural kingdom that he saw being built up before his very eyes that he had to tear down. Jesus knew that he fit the bill for what they want. He is a son of Nazareth. But he also knew he couldn't give anyone this kingdom of superiority without the humility of submitting to a God, a God who created all of us, who saved all of us regardless of works or lack thereof, who empowers all of us if we want through the Holy Spirit, a spirit that sustains all of us. My sense is that Jesus would trouble us because he knows our hearts and how easy it is to build up this cultural kingdom with all the right sayings, with all the right dressings. In him, they, this other crowd that tried to murder him, they saw their savior, the one who demonstrated the kingdom, who promised the kingdom afresh, and they were excited until it wasn't exclusively about them, until they weren't at the absolute center. And it wasn't just that they were centered, but because of this kingdom tension and kingdom timing, Jesus told these stories where their needs weren't met, the needs of the Israelites. So one last thing in scripture, what what can help explain this tenor? And actually, I, I think there's one last thing that we can look at in scripture, because we see here that Jesus is quoting from the Isaiah scroll, and it's Isaiah 61. And his audience, these regular synagogue attendees would have known that. They would have known immediately, oh, this is the Isaiah scroll. This is probably chapter 61. Here's what's in it. Here's what's not. They would know what he quoted and what he didn't quote. And sometimes we can't, we, we forget that, that we're reading something that might be more foreign to us, but for the people that were hearing it, oh, all these references click together, right? Sometimes uh, we're a little bit embarrassed by that, how that works for us, like what clicks together and how if we don't say something, maybe we would know how things finish. Like if I say, ba-da-ba-ba-ba, you're like, oh, I'm loving it, right? So not, not to shame us or anything, but like to this audience, it would be that, but with like tons of scripture, right? They're like, oh yeah, that's Psalm 25, right? That's, like, they would just know that. That was their background, right? So they would know that in Isaiah 61, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor was followed immediately by, and the day of vengeance of our God. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, what Jesus says, and then what Jesus doesn't quote, the day of vengeance of our God. And this day of vengeance is a scriptural concept that actually comes from our last sermon series, Grace on the Other Side, where there's a day where God uh, overpowers the Egyptians and that enemy is extinguished. And that day is celebrated in the Passover. And that day becomes known as like the day, like the day where God does the stuff against the people who are hurting us. Until Amos, another prophet, comes along and says, hey, that big day, guess what? There's going to be a thing that happens. And it's towards you this time, Israel, because of your disobedience. They're like, oh, we didn't, we didn't like that day. But it became this kind of thing that was still a concept of the day where our enemies will be defeated. And Jesus here is reimagining that day, even by not mentioning it. Because the day is not the time for our enemies to be punished. Instead, it's the year of the Lord. It's this time of jubilee that we're all in, all the time. Which is a tension, right? Because not all of us feel free all the time. And when we see other communities, we we know they're not free. Yet somehow Jesus is saying, it's the age of jubilee, though. Through friendship with Jesus, our debts can be canceled. Mercy can be extended. To borrow terms from Jesus' mission, we have good news, we have sight, we have freedom, we have release and healing. They're all ours through Jesus. But here's the rub. Not only are they ours, they're our enemies as well. It's us, but it's also them. 
but that is hard for us to accept. How could it be that we and our enemies believe the same news is good? That we both see rightly, that we can both experience freedom, that we can be healed and not desirous to harm the other, and that we can experience release when the other is not locked up. Do you catch that? We can experience release and freedom when that other is not in a cage, when the other is not locked up and controlled. Jesus gives us a different way. It's hard for us to do that Jesus mission when we become tribalistic, always thinking one side is the enemy that threatens us, sometimes threatening us by simply existing. And I'm convinced that the impossible mission Jesus wants us to behold in is only possible through beholding Jesus. This one person who gives us this new way, this new kingdom with all the tension, with all the strange timing, but with this incredible tenor of love all the way down. And predictably, people who can't hold on to that tension or the timing, they don't understand that fundamental tenor of the kingdom. This tenor of mercy for all, given the justice Jesus holds in his body. Ultimately, justice he shows by defeating spiritual evil, not human enemies on the cross. This tenor of mercy and justice is the way of the kingdom. It's something to behold, to wonder, to take in, to learn from, to ask questions for guidance for how to follow. And this can be quite personal and quite expansive in scope. For you and your own story, you could think about where do you need mercy? And mercy is this great word that means where goodness comes in a place of lack, like a place of emptiness, or in a place of wrongdoing. So it's goodness that flows to you because you don't have enough, and also sometimes because you've done something wrong or even a mixture of both. So where do you need mercy right now in your life? This goodness of God to you that would run to you and to your story. You can think about it, reflect on it. But then there's another question I have to ask you there, which is, where do you get offended when other people are offered the same mercy? So where do you need mercy, but where do you get offended when other people are offered the same mercy of God? Sometimes this could be quite personal. You're like, Josh, you don't want me to answer that. This person's here. Like, that would be a mess. Like, this would start a little fight right now. Sometimes it's uh, still embarrassing. They're They're not here, but you're like, okay, I'd have to tell you a few things about my life, right? But sometimes it's bigger than just our personal story. You could think, where do groups, nations, and societies need mercy? And where do you get offended? And where would those bigger groups get offended if they saw someone else get mercy? When we see situations of war in the world, or situations where there's conflict between groups. Like, what if they both got mercy? That's usually not what we think. We think one wins and one loses. What happens when they're both granted mercy? And we can sometimes think that the personal here goes against the societal thing. But I think we need both, right? Good news, sight, freedom, release, healing. We need all of that, more of that. I want to share a few stories before I close. The first is the story of a time where I needed this personal mercy. I was uh, in a really bad conflict with a friend. We had made some commitments to follow Jesus together, to kind of be excited about our faith together. I was like, yes, we're going to go and do this. And oh my goodness, what's happening now? (laughs) Because it it felt like this person just totally was like, no, I'm not doing that. But I'm like, didn't we just talk? We just prayed and we had like had like a worship moment. This was great. Like we kind of said like, this is where we're going to go together. And the person's like, no. And they kind of just ghosted me. And it felt awful to be let down in that way. I remember being so angry that I was like, you know what? I'm so angry, I'm just going to go to sleep right now. You ever like, go to sleep in anger, anyone? It's like, I'm just so mad, I just can't even, just, 
That, that's what I did, right? I don't think you're supposed to do that, but I did that. And then I had a dream. I had a dream in the night. And this dream was really strange because it was basically like these cloudy bubbles. It's weird, so sorry. This is my life. These cloudy bubbles that, set, that kind of formed a message. And the message was the most important thing about life with the living God, which is a phrase we use often here at ECV, is mercy. Like it was actually that explicit, like as if my disobedience was so great. I was like, I can't give you a story. I can't give you image. I can't, I just have to say bubble letters that say what I'm trying to tell you. I was very grateful for that. The most important thing about life with the living God is mercy. And when I woke up, one, I was like kind of annoyed. I'm like, really God? But I was also like, wow, I deeply need that message. I'm so upset and I'm so angry. And actually the thing I'm mad about, I know God like releases mercy for that. It's just that it offended me personally. It like, it made me mad. But if a person came up to me in that same situation and said, hey, should you give that person mercy? I'd be like, of course. But it was just personal to me. So it like personally offended me. But mercy is what I needed to give in that time. There were tensions in my own story. There was a timing I didn't like. I was like, we should be doing this together. But what I needed to do was release this person to experience the mercy of God. And over time, definitely not right away, that friendship actually was restored. But how many times does this also happen in bigger ways where we just assume the day of vengeance, the day of the Lord is ours to determine? And how many times does the church do that? These horrible times, right? You can know these times, right, in just looking at the newspaper, like things that have happened to the country of Haiti, like earthquakes, and people say, oh, that's because this. You're like, what are you talking about? But people say, oh, it's the day of the vengeance. It's the day of judgment. As Christians, we can be people that just carry that judgment and then just cast it down so easily. And that's not the time we're in. We're in the year of Jubilee. I remember times where street preachers have come uh, to around these corners and people saw these little placards and they're like, wait, I'm, I'm that, I'm that, I'm that. I'm all these things that people were saying is the worst kind of thing ever. And it, it, it reminds us, is that really Jubilee? Is that the Lord's love? Is that God's love? And it's not even really the day. It's just this like gross perversion of it. Someone trying to pull the authority of God and say, boom, you're judged. And I think in a time where we've all gone through this corporate virus together, this pandemic, uh, to be honest, and maybe uh, talk to me afterwards, not right now, but I, I've been surprised how little there is of that. People say, oh, this is a judgment on. And you know what? You know why I think that is? Because it was like for all of us. Like we all were under that. There wasn't the sense of it with some people or another people. I was thinking about when's one of the last times that we experienced this as a nation? And it was AIDS. And we know that that didn't happen then. The church was all kinds of homophobic. To say in this way, we're going to say it's this people that did wrong. It's this judgment that we're going to put on them. All of a sudden when a virus could be all of us this time around, we didn't use that language. So many times religious communities carry things up. They grab the authority of this day that only Jesus can bring about, this day of vengeance, right? And we weaponize it. And it seems like that day was present with Jesus when he was saying his mission, when people couldn't understand the tensions, when they couldn't understand the timing, what they did was they tried to murder him because they thought they got something that he didn't. When said he was saying, do you guys see what's happening here? It's Jubilee. It's the year of the Lord's favor. Everyone comes through me. Everyone has to experience my mercy and my justice. There's no way but through that but you can't take me and use me for your purposes to weaponize me against another community. 
That's real talk, right? But that's, I think, the invitation here to behold is this mission of Jesus that's not just something we should run and do because I think we forget this deeper point, right? The teaching isn't just the mission. The teaching is the mission and the reaction to it that leads Jesus to almost be murdered. What do we learn here together? And what kind of kingdom tensions is God calling you to navigate? What kind of kingdom timing is he calling you to have patience for and ask God to press into? And what's the kingdom tenor of love that you're challenged by? The kingdom tenor of mercy that is uh, maybe frustrating you even right now. The Lord's present here as we behold. The Lord's present here as we think about the goodness of his mission, but how much we don't want other people to have it sometimes. God, would you help us take in right now your word and your story? Would you help us take in your message to us? Lord, we want to open up our hands. Let's not weaponize your word or your story or who you are to turn it into an us-them and instead to humbly submit to you, God. To say we want to walk within the tensions you've called us to. We want to be patient for the timing of your kingdom. We want to have the right tenor as your kingdom comes, the character, the shape of the kingdom as it comes to our city. Lord, thank you that it is the year of the Lord's favor. It is this time of jubilee. I pray that we would experience, even right now, the release of guilt and shame as we receive the ministry of forgiveness. We'd also dare to join you, Jesus, as you forgive others, even people who have hurt us, have offended us. And God, we choose to, right now, through your kingdom, say that we want to speak words of blessing and mercy and hope where others would speak deep words of judgment. Lord, would you come and have your way?